From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's no secret that America is becoming a sleep-deprived nation. But just how much sleep do you need? We'll get the answers from our sleep specialist. Adults should get at least seven hours of sleep. They actually found that when you get less than seven hours of sleep, it's associated with increased weight gain, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, stroke, depression, increased risk of death. You know, just going down below the seven-hour limit is clearly a public health problem. Also on the program, March 24th is World TB Day. We'll have an update on tuberculosis. And there's a new bacterium that's spreading Lyme disease. With spring almost here, we'll have some tips for protecting yourself against this tick-borne illness. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Here's a question, Tracy, to ask yourself if you've ever wondered if you're getting enough sleep. Do you wake up with an alarm clock? (laughs) And if you do, do you usually hit the snooze button in order to get a little more shut-eye? Well, there's nothing wrong with using an alarm clock to get you up and going, but using one every day may be a sign that you're not getting the adequate sleep that you need. Thank in goodness f- for this news button. Huh? <laughs> in fact, there's evidence that if you wake up on your own without an alarm, it's your body's way of saying it's rested and ready to go. The amount of sleep that we need varies with age, but for adults, it's generally between seven and eight hours a day. Many of us don't get that, and it shows in things like lost productivity, dangerous driving behavior and not being able to stay awake when you're at your desk. Here with some answers to questions about how to get the best sleep is Mayo Clinic Sleep Medicine Specialist, Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler. Dr. Morgenthaler is past president of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Welcome to the program, Dr. Morgenthaler. It's nice to meet you. Thank you very much. I'm here to help talk about one of my favorite topics. (laughs) Sleep. Me too. Absolutely. (laughs) So the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, has it been around forever or is it just in the past few decades we've realized how important a good night's sleep is and how many of us aren't getting it? The American Academy of Sleep Medicine was first born in the um, early 1970s and its initial name was the American Sleep Disorders Association and really it changed its name to an academy uh, about 15 years ago, you know, at that time, the membership had increased dramatically because sleep is a relatively new science that's been growing very, very rapidly, both in terms of its research uh, uh, capabilities and, and really understanding a lot more about how we sleep, why we sleep, uh, what's good or bad about getting sleep. And also from a, a clinical point of view, uh, there's just been an incredible explosion in clinical sleep medicine because we were able to actually effectively diagnose and treat so many sleep disorders and improve people's quality of life and, and actually in many cases treat very serious medical problems that have to do with sleep. What have we learned about sleep in the last decade or so? You know, I think there's a few kind of key items. You know, of course, before the 1950s and 60s, we didn't really have any idea about what constituted the physiologic state of sleep. And that's really where we first started measuring brain waves and understanding that sleep is not just uh, the absence of activity, that it's actually a very active time for our brain. It's very organized uh, activity when, when we're healthy, and it accomplishes very key goals. And I think, you know, in particular over the last decade, what we've learned is that when we don't get enough and adequate quality of sleep, that it begins to affect not only the quality of our brain to learn, process, think, you know, perform with a high executive function, but it also uh, affects all kinds of other aspects of our physiology, cardiovascular health, risk of obesity, diabetes. So literally, you know, when I was first in medical school, 
uh, I was very privileged to be exposed in one of only two medical schools that actually taught sleep as part of its curriculum. And um, at the very, be- you know, at the very beginning, there was just this incredible sort of uh, eureka moment where, gee, one third of our life is spelt, spent sleeping. It actually is very important. And it's important in very specific ways. So I think a lot of what sleep science has contributed over the past, you know, few decades is is improving understanding of just where does sleep reach into the overall health scene. At this point, um, you know, the NIH, the Institute of Medicine, all firmly agree that sleep is an absolutely critical part of overall health, along with uh, diet and activity. As a percentage of the population, are there more insomniacs, are there more people with sleep problems today than a few decades ago? And if so, why? Yeah, th- that's a really good question, Tom. And I, you know, I'm not sure that we can answer the question really, really well, uh, because, you know, for one thing, our ability to actually survey, uh, uh, you know, understand sort of the epidemiology of sleep in society has been really only recently available. So there are national surveys like the BRFSS, which is behavioral risk factors uh, of, of health uh, survey that does ask questions about like, well, what is the proportion of uh, population that is not getting, you know, at least seven hours of sleep. And so we have that kind of data for maybe just, a, a, you know, a, a decade or two. Uh, we know over that time the, the fractional proportion of our adult population that's not getting enough sleep has increased. So that's not getting enough. That's not exactly the question you asked because you asked about insomnia. And to a sleep specialist, insomnia really doesn't include entirely just duration of sleep. It's Insomnia is defined as the inability to get adequate sleep despite having an adequate opportunity for sleep combined with daytime consequences of that. So it has to do with quality, duration, and daytime consequences. We don't have long-term epidemiologic data on insomnia. What we do know is that when we survey medical offices for how often is insomnia part of a complaint, it has now crept to be one of the top three complaints in private practice or in uh, primary care clinics. So we got so back it's, pain, headache, and a sleep and, disorder, and, huh? and sleep problems, exactly. Yeah. You mentioned the fact that it does have a significant effect on, on our health. And, and tell us again the problems that it cre- can create from a physical standpoint if you don't get enough sleep. If we first just talk about sleep duration, again, you know, it's, there's more to it than that, but let's just start with that. There's more and more consistency in the epidemiologic studies coming out that so, say, well, what happens if you don't get enough sleep? You know, just, just this past year, both the um, American Academy of Sleep Medicine uh, in com- combination with the CDC and with Sleep Research Society, they held a, a summit to try to develop consensus recommendations built on best evidence to say, well, what is the amount of sleep that we should get? And actually, they were very uniform in coming up with adults should get at least seven hours of sleep. They, they actually found that when you get less than seven hours of sleep on a regular basis, it's associated with various adverse health outcomes, such as increased weight gain. Gee, that's a problem that's mm-hmm. kind of prevalent. <laughs> um, risk of uh, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, stroke, depression, increased risk of death, and all of these are in studies that, you know, control for other variables that are also affected really? with those things. So, you know, just re- going down below the seven-hour le- uh, limit on a population basis is clearly a public health problem. The other thing that we know is that, you know, sleeping less than seven hours is, of course, associated with impaired immune function. So, you know, we give immunizations. Boy, if you give it to people who are sleep-deprived, it's not nearly as effective as if you give mm. it to people who have actually been well-rested. So that's something we can all take to the bank when we're going for annual influenza vaccinations and so forth. And it's also associated with increased pain, impaired performance mentally, increased errors. You know, and sometimes that's we hear about those in the news of, you know, serious traffic accidents and so forth that, you know, are literally catastrophic and, and greater risk of accidents for individuals. So, you know, as if that weren't enough, 
you know, getting adequate sleep also really has a lot to do with the overall quality of life. And anybody, you know, anybody listening here knows the difference between how you feel after a good night's sleep versus inadequate sleep. All right, quick question. You and I both know people who seem to get by and function normally on three to four hours of sleep a night. True? Uh, getting by. That's the key word there. So, you know, are there individuals who are, you know, genetically programmed to be short sleepers? Well, there may be some. And, and there are studies that show those, but those are a very small fragment of the population. What we know is that is far more common are people who are, in fact, sleep-deprived, and it manifests in their behavior and so forth and so on. Is it fair to say, um, it, to equate it to there's people who can d- drink a lot every day? It can be <laughs> highly functioning alcoholics, and there are people who are quite sleep-deprived every day and are highly functioning that way? Is that a good comparison? A little bit, but I would I would draw a slight distinction because you know people who are alcoholics in fact upregulate their liver enzymes to be able to process higher doses of alcohol. It's not that you know that they're mm-hmm. uh, free and clear. Mm-hmm. We know there's a lot of al- adverse health consequences. Right. There is no upprocessing of sleep. What we do know instead is uh, so. Let me describe a very interesting experiment done by David Dingus, and and he took normal, healthy young people. And he sleep-deprived them, okay? You know, they put them in the lab, and they say, okay, you can only sleep this far and go no further. And it's kind of like Gandalf on the bridge there. (laughs) And and then what he does is he goes ahead and he studies uh, different objective tests of how well do they perform. And he also uh, uh, studies, well, how do they feel in terms of their sleep deprivation? And what you find is that, you know, chronic sleep deprivation of, of allowing people to sleep only four or five hours for even four or five nights in a row, their performance level actually is very poor. It's almost as bad as people who are legally drunk. If you ask them how they feel, they tend to way overestimate how well they feel. In other words, they underestimate their actual degree of fatigue. So in that way, it is like not the alcoholic but about the, let's say, more casual or irresponsible drinker. All right. We're talking with sleep specialist Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler from the Mayo Clinic. He's talking to us about the importance of sleep and why you ought to be getting enough. And maybe you've got an alarm clock, but maybe that's okay. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, most people get their most restful, restorative sleep between 3 and 7 a.m. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're back talking about sleep with Mayo Clinic sleep specialist, Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler. So, Dr. Morgenthaler, myth or matter of fact, most people get their most restful, restorative sleep between 3 a.m. and 7 a.m. You know, surveys do show that that's the case. uh, And the kind of sleep that people get across a, a night, assuming that they don't have a sleep disorder, is characteristically different. When we when we study sleep, we tend to divide it up into sort of three main stages of sleep. Uh, one of them uh, is what we call relatively light, non-rapid eye movement sleep, so it's not the dream sleep. Then there's deep, non-rapid eye movement sleep, and then finally rapid eye movement sleep. And what we know is during the first part of the night as we fall asleep, we tend to spend more time in you know light non-REM sleep and a little bit of deep sleep. And then as we go th- forward in the night, it tends actually to be a, a greater proportion of rapid eye movement sleep. That particular architecture, people tend to find uh, most satisfying if they complete the cycles of sleep and if they're able to kind of wake up in a spontaneous fashion at the end of the night. So that's why the alarm clock can mess with that, because if you're not done with that restorative sleep, your brain wants to keep going. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be pragmatic. We know there are deadlines we have to get up for, but, uh, you know, there's there's really a, a very uniform findings and studies that have evaluated this, that if you can wake up naturally, if you can wake up without an alarm clock, you will, in fact, feel better 
not only in the morning when you wake up, but you'll actually feel better throughout the entire day. You know, most often the reason that we need an alarm clock for most people is because we're cutting the corner a little bit on the quantity of sleep that and we're getting. And go to bed early enough. Right. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that uh, I was asked recently about is, well, what about snooze alarms? Because, you know, most sleep specialists look at snooze alarms and say, well, that's a really bad idea. And why is it a bad idea? Well, it, it has to do with what you just mentioned. You know, if our if our best quality sleep, if the sleep that really makes us feel the best is in the last part of the night, and if we feel better waking up spontaneously, then why would we want to programmatically put in an interruption to that sleep? Now, you know, why do people do that? Well, people do that because they feel that they're going to have a hard time waking up. And, you know, what we would say, and not everybody always likes this, is, well, maybe you should go to bed earlier so that you get enough sleep so that you don't have so much difficulty waking up. Now, for most people, that really is an adequate answer. I mean, something that they have to work at. There are some individuals who have problems with their internal circadian clock that makes it very difficult for them to wake up at the hour that they're trying to. I think the most common person in the population affected with teenagers. that are teenagers. <laughs> we go through a time in our life, uh, in our teens, when the biological clock inside of our brain that kind of helps us time sleep and wake says, gee, maybe a little bit later would be better both in terms of when we fall asleep and when we wake up. It's made even worse then by all the bad sleep habits that, you know, I have five children. I've, I've fought with this as a parent. I mean, you know, there's a real tendency to uh, have uh, the text messaging and the video games and the so forth and so on kind of creep into the bedroom. You know, there isn't there a lot of evidence that, you, that we really ought to start high school at 10 o'clock in the morning? That, that's a really, it's not 10 o'clock in the morning, but the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends school start times be no earlier than 8.30. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine agrees with that assessment. We actually are about to release the results of a study that we're doing in concert with the uh, Center for Disease Control that's kind of evaluating the literature to say, well, what, you know, what is the evidence behind those statements? They're, they make good biological sense, but are, is there a literature behind that? And I can't share that with you yet because I'm not allowed to. But <laughs> well, look, look forward embargoed. to it. It's embargoed. It's <laughs> embargoed. All right, we've got to talk about some sleep problems. And, and the one we want to ask you about is sleep apnea because it seems so common. And who's at risk and, and what do you do about it? Well, and you mentioned that people can be asleep, but they don't get the best results Quality. from their sleep. Yeah. Yes. So I'm, I'm so glad you raised that. So Certainly one of our major health problems in the United States and Western society is obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. Obstructive sleep apnea syndrome, very simply put, is the tendency when people are asleep for their upper airway to collapse and it makes them impossible to breathe even though they're trying very hard to breathe. So literally it's hard for them to sleep and breathe properly at the same time. And The, the only solution for that unfortunate individual who's suffering from sleep apnea and, and strangling themselves without wanting to at night is they have to wake up so that they can breathe. So what happens with this? Well, people are getting woken up from their sleep. Uh, if you can imagine, every uh, you know 30 to 60 seconds even in some cases, but uh, even five times per hour is considered abnormal in our population. And when you have that, it's certainly associated with increased risks for cardiovascular consequences, stroke, heart attack, hypertension, arrhythmias, things like that. So it's a very serious health problem. Uh, it, you know, why is it so important right now? Well, it tends to be more common as we get heavier and older. Gee, look at our national demographics. Our society is getting older and heavier. And what's even worse is there's plenty of evidence to show that having sleep apnea actually makes it more likely that we'll gain weight. And it makes it harder mm -hmm. to lose weight because vicious having sleep circle, apnea is, huh? yeah, it's a vicious circle because having sleep apnea changes some of the hormones uh, and the hormonal regulation of our appetite, ghrelin and leptin in particular, and in, in, in exactly the wrong way. So uh, you have sleep apnea, 
being obese makes you at risk for having sleep apnea. You get the sleep apnea, it makes it more at risk for getting more obese, and it becomes a vicious cycle. That's uh, You really have to address both at the same time in order to break it. Can people get rid of sleep apnea by losing weight? And, and what's the answer for most people? Well, so up to a third of people can probably be cured of sleep apnea by losing weight. But uh, in terms of the most common treatments for people while they're working on that, a positive airway pressure is, you know, supports the upper airway, makes it easier for them to breathe. But oral appliances are also a very valid treatment for many people. And we have a, you so know, for example, It's something that here. you put in the mouth. Exactly. So this is like kind of like a football mouth guard, but instead of positioning your jaw in the very neutral position, it tends to help thrust your lower jaw forward and helps open the airway while you relax and sleep. And some people, that works on some people not having to use the CPAP machine. It, it actually could be effective therapy for up to 50 or more percent of people. It's not as common in this country, but it's a, a therapy that's growing. The bad thing about oral appliances, you know, is that they're not as reliably effective. So we always have to have some kind of follow-up study to know that they actually worked. Why doesn't sleep get the credit it deserves? Probably the realization of how important sleep is to our overall health has really only come to the forefront in the last couple decades. And meanwhile, you know, what our society really seems to value is action, action, action. And, you know, unfortunately, Thomas Edison made it possible for us to have action 24-7, 365. And so it's a, it's a value thing. You know, having said that, I think, you know, mindfulness, something that people are really becoming much more aware of, we never talked about that before. And guess what? That actually also takes time out of the go, go, go mentality. So we're going to have to learn how to make more time for sleep if we really want to be maximally healthy and maximally productive. All right. How many? We have 30 seconds left. Right. All right. What's your best sleep tip? Allow enough time for sleep. You cannot cram seven hours of sleep into five hours. You've got to prepare your schedule and allow enough time for sleep. That would be the most important thing. That's what I see people shortcutting the most when they come into my office. A couple more? You know, I think the other thing is for, for most people, they have a tendency to have uncomfortable bedroom environments. So we know that actually you sleep better when the temperature is a little lower. Uh, we know that uh, not everybody likes the same bed. Think about your bedroom environment. Is it dark? Are you sleeping at the right time of the day? If, if your job allows, and is the temperature and noise level appropriate. What about a sleep diary? We talk about food diaries. Is a sleep diary a big deal? So is an exercise diary a big right. deal? I mean, it's in the same category. Uh, is a food diary the same deal? If you're a person who's healthy and you have a good balance of everything, you probably have better things to do with your time than keep a diary on all three of these things. If you're a person who's struggling with your health or your quality of life, well, then I think beginning to study your own habits in a, in a reasoned way is a good idea. And, you know, keeping a diary just pen and paper can work very well. But as you know, there's also quite a number of apps available and so forth that can make this process a little less painful. All right. And keep the bedroom cool. I like it. it. Dr. Mayor Morgenthaler, he is an expert in sleep medicine. Thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, an update on drug-resistant tuberculosis. And Borrelia maonii. Maleonii. <laughs> Borrelia no. maleonii. No, maonii. We'll find out. It's a recently discovered bacteria in the latest bug found to cause Lyme disease. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Cranberry juice. Many people reach for it to treat urinary tract infection or UTI symptoms such as painful urination and frequency. And if it's uh, getting better, then they're doing the right things. 
when it's not, when it's progressing to them noticing blood in their urine, if they're getting fever, um, if they're getting some low back pain. Then, says Mayo Clinic family medicine specialist Dr. Summer Allen, it's time to see a health care provider to determine if you need antibiotics, which are the first line of treatment for UTIs. The type of antibiotic you take depends on the type of bacteria found in your urine. And Dr. Allen says the most common culprits are... The E. coli uh, bacteria. Anyone can get a UTI, but women are at highest risk. If you develop symptoms that won't go away, see your health care provider for evaluation and treatment to prevent a serious infection. And in other news, information about the benefits of eating right and exercising just keep coming. So here's a related question. Could an unhealthy diet and lack of exercise be making you age faster? Researchers at Mayo Clinic believe there is a link. In a recent study, researchers found that a poor diet and lack of exercise accelerated the onset of what's called cellular senescence and in turn age-related conditions in mice. Now, senescent cells are cells that contribute to diseases and conditions associated with age, The Mayo researchers found that exercise prevents premature senescent cell accumulation and protects against the damaging effects of an unhealthy diet, studying ways to help people increase their health expectancy as they age. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, next Thursday, March 24th, is World TB Day. It's a day on which health organizations work to raise awareness about a disease that, in 2014, affected nearly 10 million people worldwide and caused about a million and a half deaths. More than 9,000 of those TB cases were diagnosed right here in the U.S. Wow. With the incidence of TB has declined in recent years, it remains a serious health threat, especially for people infected with HIV. Drug-resistant strains of TB are also a concern. Well, joining us to talk about World TB Day and to update us on diagnosing and treating this still too common illness is Dr. Stacy Rizza. Dr. Rizza is an infectious disease specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Rizza. Nice to see you. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. It's uh, not something that we need to have a hallmark card for, but World TB Day is obviously TB is a big enough deal that it gets its own day. Yes, absolutely. It is a monumentally important infection that still affects a very large portion of the world. In fact, it's been estimated that about one-third of the humans on planet Earth have been infected with tuberculosis at some point. And how does that happen? So tuberculosis is a bacteria. It's what's called a mycobacteria, so it's very, very small, and it infects humans predominantly in the respiratory tract. So if somebody who is infected coughs, one of these teeny little bacteria can be in a little droplet that then gets sprayed in the air, and somebody else who's in the vicinity could inhale it into their body. So once you inhale it, it goes to your lung, and over time it can disseminate to other parts of the body in some situations. And there are some people, I assume, who inhale this and never get the disease. Absolutely. So there are essentially two forms of the disease. If somebody inhales this little teeny bacteria, but it's a very small amount, and that person's immune system is strong, Many times that bacteria will stay in very, very small amounts in the body. The immune system will control it, and that person will have absolutely no idea that they've been exposed or have a little bit of this bacteria in their body. And that's what we call a latent tuberculosis infection, or LTBI. 
And the only danger to that is over time, if that person's immune system becomes weak or as they get older and their immune system ages, it's possible that that little teeny bit of bacteria may start to grow and then eventually form an active infection. However, in many situations, it doesn't, and the person just lives with that teeny bit of bacteria the rest of their life. Is it important to know that you have LTBI, latent tuberculosis infection? Yes, excellent question. It is important to know because it is very hard to predict and who and when it may start to grow and actually become an active infection. So as a society and as a planet, what we need to do is identify everybody who has been exposed to tuberculosis and may have a little teeny bit of this bacterium in them so that once we diagnose them, we can treat them and either treat their active infection so that they feel better and don't infect others or treat their latent infection so that it never actually reactivates and becomes an active infection. That's the part that always trips me up, because when you go to see your doctor or when you take your kids to see the doctor, they say, have you been exposed to tuberculosis? And I always say, I hope not. (laughs) That's a good answer. I say, no, but how do I know if I've been exposed or not? Also a very good question. Um, In the United States, we don't have as much... tuberculosis as there are in other parts of the world. But the places where somebody might be exposed is in countries where tuberculosis is endemic, so it's in very high levels, or in hospitals where people are being treated for tuberculosis, or prisons have a very high incidence of tuberculosis. Homeless people have a high incidence of tuberculosis. And predominantly in the United States, it's in foreign-born individuals who were born in one country may have been exposed as children, and then when they immigrated to the U.S. at some other stage in their life, it reactivated and became an active infection. So how do you find out if you have been exposed to TB? There are several tests we can do to diagnose TB. The one that most people are familiar with and that's used throughout most of the world is called a PPD or a TST, which stands for a tuberculin skin test. A Manitou test is another word for it that you may have heard. So they take a little bit of the tuberculosis, they put it under your skin and your forearm, and then wait two days. And if somebody has been exposed to tuberculosis previously, then in most situations, their immune system will have already formed a anti-TB immunity. Oh, okay. So what happens is when you put that little bit of the antigen or little teeny bits of that bacteria under the skin, you wait and see if the immune system reacts. If the immune system doesn't react, then that means most likely the person has not been exposed. And what the reaction will look like is a hardening or a swelling and sometimes a little bit of a redness in that area under the skin. Another way to look for tuberculosis is actually a blood test where they look for the reaction of the immune system in a blood test. So the tuberculin skin test is cheaper. It's easier to use for people around the world, but it does require two visits, somebody to come in for the little lump to be put under their skin And then they have to come back two days later for a health professional to interpret it. The blood test is a one-time draw, but it's a little more expensive. Once you find someone with TB, is it is it easy to treat or is it difficult to treat? Well, it depends, like (laughs) most things in medicine. So there are two parts to that answer. If the tuberculosis is sensitive, meaning it has not developed resistance to the drugs we have to treat it, then that makes it a little more straightforward. But this is a bacteria that grows very slowly, and when bacteria grow slowly, they also die slowly, which means the treatment, even for very sensitive tuberculosis, is anywhere from four to two drugs, starting off with four and generally decreasing to two drugs, for six months. So it's not an easy treatment, but fortunately, they're a very good success if people take their medication and take every single pill. 
Now, if somebody has a bacterium that is resistant to the drugs we commonly use, and that makes it much more difficult to treat, and we have to use second-line drugs that aren't as effective and have more side effects. So the treatment is very much linked to our public health officials in the state, county, state, and federal level. So when somebody is diagnosed with active tuberculosis, we rely upon our public health department to actually make sure that the patients are getting their medicines and swallowing it. And most patients in the United States are treated with what we call DOT, or directly observed therapy. So a public health official will actually come to the person's home or meet the person and watch them take the pill. And the reason why is this has a huge public health implication. If somebody is not taking their medicines regularly, they're at risk of infecting others in society. And if they're not taking it regularly, they're also possibly inducing resistance, so they'd be infecting people with a resistant bacteria, which is even more difficult. So is it easy to treat? We absolutely have effective therapy, but it's not necessarily easy therapy. It's not a pill a day for three weeks, as some things can be. In an ideal world, should everyone be tested for TB? Um, in an ideal world where medicine and resources, or where money and resources weren't an issue, yes, it would be nice if we knew every person on the planet right now who were infected with TB, if we were able to link them with care and treat them, that's how we would eliminate tuberculosis. And that's the plan for the WHO and the CDC to hopefully eliminate tuberculosis. Worldwide, it's actually become the number one infectious disease that kills people just past HIV this year. So it is still an issue on our planet, and it's still something we have to pay attention to. If our listeners have in any way been exposed to tuberculosis, meaning they know they've uh, been in a friend's house where the person was later diagnosed with TB or had an uncle that died of TB and they never were checked or sat on an airplane and found out later that someone on their airplane had TB, please go to your physicians and get tested for TB. And if you know you're positive, please get treated. Thanks, Dr. Rizza, for updating us on tuberculosis as we look forward to World TB Day on March 24th. Dr. Stacy Rizza is an infectious disease specialist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks, Dr. Rizza. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, a new bacterium that has been discovered carries Lyme disease. We'll tell you how it was named and how to protect yourself from getting Lyme disease. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, in an era when most of the plants and animals of the world have already been identified, it does create quite a stir, among scientists at least, when a new species is discovered. Well, that's exactly what happened recently when scientists who were studying Lyme disease at the Mayo Clinic found a new bacterium that causes the, the disease. Really, Tom? What is it called? Well, you, know, you want me to try this? Let's go. Borrelia mayonii, in honor of the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> like, very good. <laughs> this new bacterium joins another bug that causes this increasingly common illness. In fact, the CDC reports that confirmed cases have more than doubled in the past 20 years from about 10,000 to around 25,000 each year. Pretty amazing. Well, we thought we'd get an update on this new bug and Lyme disease in general from one of the scientists who is part of the discovery team. She is Bobby Pritt, Dr. Bobby Pritt, a pathologist and director of the Clinical Parasitology Laboratory at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Pritt. Good to have you. Thank you. It's great to be back. You have finally made the Mayo Clinic famous. Borrelia <laughs> mayonii. 
<laughs> you know, it sounds like a, a, a new kind of pasta. Yeah, it does a little. I don't want any. I'll pass. Yeah. If you I don't serve think this. You, you want to decline that meal. <laughs> so tell us, first of all, how do you discover a new tick? Well, it was really done in the course of routine testing. We were testing for Borrelia burgdorferi. That's the known cause of Lyme disease in the United States. And we had a PCR assay looking for the molecular DNA of the bacterium. And while we were doing that, we saw an atypical result. So it really was a great catch on the, on the uh, role of my technologist who noted it repeated the result, was still atypical, so then she brought it to my attention. And we did further workup, and sure enough, when we sequenced it and looked at the DNA of it, it was something completely different than what we had ever seen before, that anyone had ever reported in the, in the world. But you found this bug on a tick? No, we found the bug in a blood specimen from a patient. We were doing routine diagnostic testing for Lyme disease on blood samples that we get from all throughout the United States through Mayo Medical Laboratories. Oh. Okay. Right. And so the, the the usual cause is a bacterium called what? Borrelia burgdorferi. That was the known cause of Lyme disease. And at the time, it was the only known cause of Lyme disease in the United States. So to know that there's two different types of tick? Well, two different types, types of bacteria bacterium. that okay. are in the tick, in its salivary glands. And when the tick bites you, it injects the organism into your body. That's how humans get infected. So is, does this explain why you hear all of these stories about Lyme disease that goes undetected because they're testing for that other bacteria and this is the one that's causing this case of Lyme disease? It's hard to say for sure. Of course, we've only had six cases of infection with this new bacterium so far, but it looks like the serology tests, we look for antibodies for Borrelia burgdorferi, the standard cause of Lyme, will also detect this organism. So it probably doesn't explain test results, but what's different is the way that this, these infections present it. They weren't the classic, uh, you think of a bullseye rash, right. a targetoid rash at the site of the tick bite. Only one of our patients had that. Other patients had diffuse rashes throughout their whole body. So I'm more concerned about physicians who might see a patient with rashes all over their body and not put it together to even think about Lyme disease and not order any testing. Thankfully, if they order the testing, especially the testing we perform here, we think it would detect this new organism. So the symptoms are a little bit different or can yeah. be a little bit different depending on right. which bug is involved. So there are just two of them. Just two in the, the United old, States. Yep. And then the, yours is the second. Yes. Right. And so um, a couple of other symptoms that were a little different. We had patients with nausea and vomiting. So you can imagine you have a young child that comes in with nausea and vomiting in the summertime. You aren't thinking Lyme disease necessarily. You're thinking, oh, they ate some bad potato Ooh, salad person. at yeah. a mm. church dinner Too or something. Too many hot dogs. Right. <laughs> so that's another symptom that people have to think about now with Lyme disease. I think the number one thing that people think about is that bullseye mm-hmm. rash. And so if that's not present... Like I was saying, I just I feel like I know a dozen people that it didn't get detected right away because, oh, they didn't have that bullseye. Well, and and that's important, too, because that bullseye, even though it is the classic finding, is still only present in 70 to 80 percent of cases. Mm-hmm. And if the bullseye happens to be on your scalp, sure. you might not see it. If you get bitten by a tick and it's up in your hairline or if it's on your back and you haven't turned around to look at your own back. So they may not have the bullseye or they may not have seen the bullseye. Most patients who get bitten by a tick and and they get one of these two bacterium in their mm-hmm. in their system, do some of them get better without any treatment? And is it important to know that you have Lyme disease? 
I'll answer the second question first. It is important to know you have Lyme disease and you want to catch it early. You want to get treatment early because then it can go on to complications. Um, there probably are some people who get Lyme disease that get better on their own, but Lyme disease is important because it can go uh, on in your body and cause an ongoing infection. And then what will happen, it will start off in the skin with that bullseye rash, but then it'll go into the blood and it'll go to the joints. It can go to the heart and go to the brain. And does it recur? Does it stick around? What's it, the deal with that? It usually doesn't. The thought is is that the antibiotics will kill it, but the problem is is once it does damage, you can have ongoing symptoms. So it's called post-treatment Lyme, uh, Lyme syndrome where someone was treated. They may not have the infection anymore, but they're still going to have arthritis or neurologic symptoms. So what is the treatment? If You, you get a lot of specimens here uh, every day, mm-hmm. every week. Uh, from around the country, and right. and and what you you can make a definitive diagnosis of Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. We can in a good number of cases, and you want to start antibiotic treatment. It's routine course of antibiotic, usually doxycycline, and if you catch it early, then you're much much less likely to have con- uh, complications of disease. And so the antibiotic treatment is what two weeks or or longer? Well, I I should say that I'm not an infectious disease physician or a primary care physician. I'm, I work in the laboratory, but yes, it's usually a, a one to two week course. The first time that you were on the program, you were here to talk about your blog yes. that is becoming so wildly popular. <laughs> we, we shouldn't miss a chance for you to give a shout out to your blog too, if people oh. want to follow it. Yeah, it's a blog about parasites. It's all cases of parasites that have come into my laboratory. Not good for lunchtime viewing. Right. Good, good warning. <laughs> and it's called Creepy, Dreadful, Wonderful Parasites. And if you just Google that or type that into a search engine, you'll find it. And what I do is every week I post a new case, and then the following week I post the answer. All right. And people should feel free to write in with what they think it is, because I love to get comments. Now, before we got going, you said there's actually been a name change. So there's wood ticks and there's deer ticks. Right. And we always were on the lookout for deer ticks. They're a lot smaller. They are. But they're not called deer ticks anymore. Right. So we're really going away from the name deer tick. The ticks, that's a misnomer. The ticks will bite. All sorts of different mammals, chipmunks, small rodents. So to call it a deer tick unfairly implies that the deer is somehow responsible. So the deer lobby came up yeah. big against this, right? <laughs> so really, it's probably better to call it the black-legged tick, and that's what the CDC Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are recommending as a name. All right, what well, we need to know: nobody wants to get Lyme disease because you talked about the mm-hmm. complications if if untreated or treated late. How do we stay away from this disease? Yeah, so it's really best that prevention is key. You want to stay away from the disease, and by that, you want to stay away from the ticks. And if you're going to be out where there are ticks, you want to protect yourself from the ticks. So some of it can just be as simple as if you're walking through the woods and there's a path, stay on the path and don't go into the sides where the tall grasses are. But, of course, you know, we want to be adventuresome or you're going to go out and do yard work. You might need to go into those tall grasses. Well, then you should have insect repellent on, something like DEET. You should tuck your pants into your socks, keep the ticks from crawling up your pant leg, wear long sleeve shirts. And you can get clothing that you either yourself spray with an insecticide like permethrin, or you can even buy them already impregnated with permethrin. Hmm. All right, Borrelia mayonii, can you say it? Borrelia mayonii. Perfect. (laughs) Thanks, Dr. Pritt, for updating us on the new bacterium and about Lyme disease in general. Dr. Bobby Pritt is a pathologist and director of the Clinical Parasitology Laboratory at Mayo Clinic. Thanks, Dr. Pritt. It's been a pleasure. And that's our program for this week. 
For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.